Stop. Can't find my bookmark. <laughs> Edit this part out while I look for... I seem to have lost it. Is this a bookmark in an actual book? It's in an know. actual book. And I'm I don't know. I think we should, we should include this in the podcast. <laughs> okay, welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. One of the reasons we're doing this Alien series is because of you, Johanna. So <laughs> give us the opening salvo here. What's going on? Aliens has been a classic in, in my family, watched annually since I was probably about 10 years old. And it just gets better and better the more I learn about classic horror and learn how this fits into the genre. Of course, it's one of the most quotable sci-fi horror films of all time. And there's a great ensemble performance, which usually horror films are not known for their acting. And this is one where the performances are all really memorable and fun, especially Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, is an all-time hero of mine. She has inspired more than one Halloween costume on, <laughs> for, for me, but uh, that's not all. It's really great to have a female character who behaves in a way that is realistic and accessible and still also very much her own person determined she is loving and caring and brave and smart and strategic and all in a way that still makes her feel like a real human being and for that i'm excited to be exploring the series for those who did not hear our episode on alien i would suggest you go back and listen to it but even if you didn't We'll do a quick recap. Alien came out in 1979. It was a horror film pitched as Jaws in Space, directed by Ridley Scott. It was not considered to be a commercial success by the studio, nor was it considered particularly a critical success either. It's hard to believe that because now it's considered one of the greatest horror movies of all time, and it's gone on to spawn this franchise which has lasted decades but at the time it was considered something of a failure it was based on some early science fiction stories and one of them i think was the voyage of the space beagle i found a description of the voyage of the space beagle in a book called Aliens, Robots, and Spaceships by Jeff Rovin. Jeff Rovin was kind of a pop culture expert, and he authored a number of books on popular culture topics. In it, he lists the Space Beagle. The Space Beagle was a spaceship in A.E. Van Vogt's stories, particularly the Black Destroyer. The Space Beagle had multiple adventures, but in one of them was the battle with the Ixtl. I-X-T-L, quote, the battle with Ixtl is a rough one. The alien is 10.5 feet tall, has red skin, a tubular body with four spider-like legs, four arms, and long spindly digits at the ends of all of them. It lives on energy and can survive even in space. When food is unavailable, it doesn't die, but goes into hibernation. The last surviving denizen of a planet that exploded in the distant past, Ixtol floats in space until it encounters the Space Beagle, enters the vessel, and plants its jelly-like eggs in crew members, eggs that the hosts will keep healthy until they hatch in six hours. The contaminated crew members are found out, and the eggs are surgically removed. While a creature hides in an air duct, the crew members come up with a plan. They enter the lifeboats and leave the Space Beagle, fearing that they are going to unleash a hell of energy in the ship enough to kill it. Ixel abandons the space beagle, at which point the crew returns and throws up a force field, leaving Ixel to float eggless in space, unquote. So that was a story written in the 1930s. And I think that we can pretty much say, yeah, Aliens got as at least as much inspiration from that than it did from It the Terror from Beyond Space. Although It the Terror from Beyond Space is also supposed to have been inspired by that story. And that's very early for a story like that. You know, in my imagination, I wouldn't have thought that it would have been that early. There almost sounds like a Lovecraftian kind of influence on that. And I hadn't thought to explore that connection, but that's an interesting thought. Lovecraft definitely was an influence on Giger, 
In fact, one of Giger's collections of works is called the Necronomicon, which was, of course, a book title from Lovecraft's stuff. Lovecraft, although we now think of him as more fantasy horror, was science fiction for the time. Many of the creatures came from space. I quoted at length there, just thought it was worth bringing up. The other thing I wanted to talk about having to do with Alien is I mentioned it was made into a graphic novel. Recently, I went back and reread it. It was called Alien, the Illustrated Story, and it was published by Heavy Metal magazine. I have to say that it was okay. It was the first comic or graphic novel ever to make the New York Times bestseller list. Heavy Metal made better comics than this. The art is kind of crude by today's standards, particularly the colors I found were not great. It was done in watercolor and very um, more bright colors. And that's not what I think of when I think of Alien. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up the comic book. The fact that it was so popular probably points to the fact that the first movie raises a lot of questions. And part of the feeling of the film, which we discussed with It, The Terror from Beyond Space, is this sense of like every 10 minutes or so you find out some new thing about the creature that you're like, wait, and this also can't kill it? Or like, wait, and now it's got acid for blood? You know, like it brings up these new elements of the creature, but never really answers like where the creature comes from. What does it want? We don't get answers to that. So I can imagine how viewers of the movie Alien would have been eager to see, are we going to find out more about whether this threat is now contained? Was there really just one left or like that ship's just sitting out there? And a lot of those questions get answered in the comic book, but then also a lot of those questions get answered in Aliens. In terms of bridging the gap, I can see how building more fan enthusiasm for wanting to know more about this creature and what that means for the world of the humans, I think Aliens the movie also satisfies some of that hunger. I think it's also one of the downfalls of the franchise too, though, and we'll talk about this if we talk about any of the later films that come after Aliens. Not knowing stuff about this creature is part of the horror. The more we learn as the series goes on, the more redundant and okay, it's not scary and new anymore. It happens, you know? But before we get into things too deep, I want to set the stage here by talking about the year this came out, 1986. One thing to remember about the 80s is there was a lot of violence, particularly international violence. Starting right on the first day of January 1986, a IRA bomb killed two police officers in Northern Ireland. We're going to see a lot of insurgency and stuff like that throughout the 80s. There was an attempted coup in Yemen in mid-January. That has had repercussions that are still going on to this day. The first personal computer virus, Brain, started to spread. National Resistance Army rebels took over Uganda, which led to war there. But the big one that I remember, the one that everyone my age remembers, Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in late January, January 28th. In February, Pixar was founded. In Haiti, baby Doc Duvalier fled the country, which led to elections, massive election fraud and upheaval. Ferdinand Marcos also allowed elections, strongman in the Philippines, and that led to all kinds of upheaval. So you're getting all these little strongman dictator type things versus popular revolts around the world. The U.S., at the time had a policy of strong anti-communism. So that's how the U.S. often got drawn into colonial type wars or interventions of places that weren't necessarily colonies of the U.S. This was the new paradigm that followed the colonial stuff. Although colonial wars were still happening, I remember the Falkland crisis uh, happened sometime in the 80s. Also, Halley's Comet, coming back for the first time in almost 100 years. There were a number of really close calls militarily. One of them was the Black Sea incident. U.S. and Soviet warships came into conflict over territorial waters. And another time during the, the calendar year, I forget when it was exactly, but there was also a near nuclear exchange over NATO operations. So still very much in the Cold War. Former United Nations Secretary General was uh, accused of being a Nazi war criminal. Uh, that was Kurt Waldheim. 
so we're still dealing with the re repercussions of World War II in the 1980s. The first child born to a non-related surrogate mother, Operation El Dorado Canyon. 15 people die after the U.S. bombs Libya. A British journalist was kidnapped and others were killed in retaliation for the bombing of Libya. This continues to escalate terrorism and anti-terrorism efforts that we are still living with to this day. In May, Paramount Pictures releases Top Gun and uh, also Kurt Waldheim, alleged Nazi war criminal, was elected president of Austria. So there is a shift to the right going on in a lot of the Western world. The most popular films of 1986 were Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, Platoon, The Karate Kid Part 2, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, Aliens, Ruthless People, The Color of Money, and The Money Pit. And I mention that because with the exception of Crocodile Dundee, these movies represent sort of three of the hallmarks of the 1980s, in my opinion. Futurism, militarism, and capitalism. Futurism, the U.S. really wanted to see the end of the Cold War, and how are we going to do it through militarism and through capitalism, militarily and economically. And Top Gun, Platoon, and even The Karate Kid Part Two, to some extent, have a self-defense military kind of aspect to them. Star Trek and aliens deal with the future and, in fact, sort of military in space. And Ruthless People, The Color of Money, and The Money Pit all deal with greed or 80s yuppie capitalism. And even that sort of makes its way into Crocodile Dundee, which deals with kind of colonialism issues and kind of capitalism issues. So... I think Aliens is the perfect 80s movie in that it combines all of these things. Cameron started the script for Aliens early on. Fox brought him on board, and then he left to go direct The Terminator. And this was unusual for a major studio to let a director on a key big budget film just like go off and do another movie that he wanted to do and then come back. Even though James Cameron more or less got his way as he was preparing to shoot the film, things were really tough at Pinewood Studios. They did not respect him the way that they had respected Ridley Scott. Apparently, it was such a living hell that as they were finishing the shoot, Cameron addressed the crew saying that the one thing that was keeping him going through the filming process was the certain knowledge that one day I would drive out of Pinewood and never come back and that you sorry bastards would still be here. So the sets are incredible. When some of the Fox execs saw a first cut of the film, they were dismayed because they were looking at the sets saying, these are too good. What, what did you do with all of our money? You put it all into building sets. But actually, a lot of the film was shot using miniatures. They had a really incredible team of artists behind that. One of the other things that they improved uh, between the original and this version is, um, of course, there are more aliens in aliens, plural. And <laughs> so, um, well, uh, let me let me jump in real quick on that. Do you know the legendary pitch session for this movie? We've talked about how Alien was pitched as Jaws in space by Dan O'Bannon and s such. Well, this movie was written by Cameron mostly in late 83, the winter of 83, 84, while he had to take a break from Terminator because Schwarzenegger was under contract to do Conan the Destroyer. So while Schwarzenegger was off in Mexico filming that, Cameron finished the script for this movie and he pitched it to the studio. Studio did not want a sequel to Alien. Remember, it was considered a commercial failure. But by the time he pitched it, Terminator had come out. He knew that he could do no wrong. So he knew he was going to get the job no matter what, but he didn't come in with any visuals, no assistant, nothing. The legend is he came into the pitch room and they had a chalkboard and he went up and wrote what his next project was going to be. And he wrote the word alien. And then he put an S on the end, <laughs> turned it into aliens and then that got a reaction. And then he put two lines through the S like a dollar sign. 
within 15 <laughs> seconds or something, supposedly, they greenlit the sequel to Alien. That's the legend anyway. Well, and that explains, I, and, you know, I almost wanted to jump in earlier when you were recapping the themes of films in the 80s. I'm interested in debating whether this film is a little less critical of capitalism than the first one, or critical in a different way. There are moments of it where you can feel like they are selling me a thrill ride. You know that they made a film that was going to be less difficult to watch. That's not actually a criticism. I think it's great that this film works for a wider audience than the original. It just makes it different. It doesn't have the same kind of teeth because you can sort of tell that the film has a love-hate relationship with capitalism, is what I would say. You can tell from watching this in a way that the original, the corporate entity that's behind the scenes calling the shots that has led them into danger, you never see those people. They're like a faceless entity in the first one. And and I, anyway, we'll get into it. I, I, won't, I won't digress too far, but I'm glad you brought up the thing about the dollar sign. That's very interesting. Going back to uh, some of the behind the scenes stuff, Sigourney wasn't eager for a sequel to Alien either. And the only reason why she agreed to do the film was because she really liked the mother-daughter storyline with Newt. And once she was on board, the film was more or less good to go. Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Best Actress. It was the first ever nomination for a woman as an action hero. The film was nominated for six other awards, uh, mostly technical, and it won Best Sound Editing and Best Visual Effects. Very well deserved. So going back to the rest of the cast, since we were going to talk about some of our buddies from Terminator, of course, we have Lance Henriksen, who played an LAPD officer in Terminator, coming back now to play the android Bishop. There was apparently an earlier vision of the film where Bishop was going to wear a contact, but then they decided that Lance Henriksen was scary enough just on his own. So um, without getting dolled up, Lance Henriksen gives a pretty memorable performance as the android you are taught to maybe distrust, maybe not, from the beginning of the film. Michael Bean comes back to play Corporal Hicks, and then also the scenery-eating Bill Paxton, who has some of the best lines of the film, even though supposedly most of them are improvised. A lot of the great lines that actually occur in the beginning of the film were improvised because that scene was shot last. And so the camaraderie you see with the soldiers in the mess hall after they've woken up, those scenes were shot after all the other filming was complete. And so that camaraderie was real. And the only other character I want to mention, which helps give the film this authentic feeling, is Al Matthews, who plays the sergeant, was an actual Marine in Vietnam and was the first black Marine to be meritoriously promoted to the rank of sergeant. Cameron wanted the film to have kind of like a vague resonance with other Vietnam War films. That kind of feeling of a really tight-knit group of soldiers going into a hostile foreign world. There was a little bit of a Vietnam War feeling. Thinking back about the conflicts that you were outlining, a lot of them are bubbling tension and violence and hostility all over the world, but Vietnam would have been the most recent major conflict that the U.S. was in. So there's a lot of parallel there. In terms of the militarism, this would have been an unnecessary parallel to draw. Having lived through the 80s, the shadow of Vietnam was strong. There was a lot of feeling that the U.S. didn't get it right in Vietnam, that we should go back to Vietnam. Every major action hero had a film about going back to Vietnam. <laughs> Stallone had Rambo. David Carradine was in one. Gene Hackman was in one. Chuck Norris made a whole series of missing in action films. The Vietnam Memorial went up in the early 80s in D.C. And Cameron was one of the writers on Rambo and actually has said that he took some of the things that got left out of Rambo and put them in aliens. <laughs> this is, in my opinion, a Vietnam War film. This is we got to go into hostile enemy territory. And it doesn't matter that we have better guns and better weapons and stuff like that. It's not going to make any difference. The aliens are in their own territory. They 
hide in trenches and tunnels and they will pick people off one by one. That is exactly what happens in every Vietnam War movie. And that is exactly what happens in Aliens. It's interesting to consider whether this film is glorifying of the military or whether it's showing ultimately there are some problems and some conflicts you can't solve with the military. Is it that this was inevitably going to be a failed mission from the start and they should have come up with a different plan? Or is it, look at how brave and awesome these people are? Or is it both? One of the great things about Cameron's writing is that he sees things are not black and white. The military is good, but the military is also bad. Capitalism is good, but capitalism is also bad. Paul Reiser, who is the best yuppie, like he... Like he could have been Gordon Gecko or something like that. He's working for the company. What do they want him to do? Bring back aliens. Why do they want him to bring back aliens? Bioweapon. <laughs> They're already wanting to exploit this. And this is a theme that you find throughout Cameron's writings. You have it in The Abyss big time. Militarism almost brings about the end of humanity. Also, capitalism is why they're trying to exploit this stuff. Same with Avatar. Mm-hmm which also had Sigourney Weaver, by the way, and frankly, even Titanic. Yes. <laughs> it's very much about greed and putting people in jeopardy because profits are more important than people. But, you know, this is Cameron. He did make the dollar sign on the S. The way they got Sigourney Weaver was not just the maternal role. It was also this movie made her a millionaire. She was going to get paid over a million dollars to be in this, which is a lot of money for an actress. Plus, she got share of the film's profits. So there is a lot of capitalism surrounding this film and futurism, too. Like, is the future going to be bright and shiny like Star Trek for The Voyage Home, which came out the same summer? Or is it going to be this dark future of aliens? I'm glad you brought up The Voyage Home because, of course, I'm also a huge Star Trek fan. What a huge difference. The aliens in Star Trek Voyage Home are just like checking in on the way. Yeah. You know, like they're like they're, you know, going to possibly destroy the planet and cause all of this other chaos because they're sending down this beacon to talk to the whales and it's causing all this disruption. But ultimately, once they figure out, oh, no, they're just trying to check in on these whales that we have made endangered and nearly killed off. And so we, the humans, are to blame and the aliens are the good guys. Which, by the way, is the same theme as the abyss. But I'll just throw that out there. So Cameron would go on to make that movie later. Yes. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting comparing films like that, where the assumption is like, oh, no, like we think those people over there or these creatures over there are bad and dangerous. But actually, once you get close enough, you see that they're not so bad. And in Aliens, the closer you get, the worse it is, like the, the more hostile and the more determined they are. One of the scenes that I think is most interesting in this film is the confrontation between Ripley and the alien queen and what this reveals about humans' possible future relationship with the aliens. Like, is there ever a scenario where the two of them can coexist and just, like, have respectful distance from each other? And the film's answer is no. no. There is no scenario in which the alien race is going to just let the humans be okay by themselves. And there's no scenario in which the humans would ever trust them to do that. No. And what's really interesting about that scene is it's mom versus mom, right? Sigourney Weaver is the mother to Newt in a lot of ways. What we didn't see in the theatrical version, it got cut out, probably rightly so for time. But the one thing that I think in the extended version of this film that is not in the theatrical version that I think adds something to it is the fact that we learn that Ripley's daughter is dead. Ripley, of course, was in cryosleep for 50 some years. And her daughter, who was Newt's age when she left Earth, grew old and died in that time. And so Newt is like her adopted daughter in some ways. And the alien queen is a mother, too, in its own way. And so when you get to that scene, you have two maternal instincts clashing with each other and Ripley's going to back out of the room and leave, but she's also going to torch every last alien egg on the way out, you know? 
What I like about her as a personal hero is the way she goes about negotiating being a woman in a male-dominated area is much more believable than in a lot of other action films. Just think of any film with Angelina Jolie, where she's like more or less has all the money to go off and do her own thing, and she doesn't have to answer to anybody. Like think about Tomb Raider. And what Ripley does that is so different from that is that she tries to work within the system first. When she meets the Sarge as just a very clear example, and she says, hey, I feel like a fifth wheel around here. Like, is there anything I can do? And he says, I don't know. Is there anything you can do? And she says, well, I can drive that loader. And she's willing to kind of accept other people's authority and try to work within the system when they go to the planet and it's clear that things are totally going to shit, she tries to work with Gordon to get him to make the call and only steps in and overrides his authority when it's clear there is no other option. I think it's an interesting thing to see how she progresses over the course of the film. She starts off wanting to work within the rules and then eventually takes charge and becomes this super character who is willing to make the call herself. She's like, I am going to torch these things. I don't have to ask for permission. I'm not going to negotiate with anybody. This is my instinct kicking in that these all have to go. And it's great seeing what leads her to that point. When I look at male action heroes, the prototypical one I think of is Bruce Willis, and particularly Die Hard. And what made that movie so special and different, or really compelling, I should say, is that Bruce Willis was like the everyman. He was not some superhero or whatever. He was this guy who just wanted to get home to his family. And he had to deal with terrorists and all of that. You know, he was thrust into that role. Angelina Jolie is like a bombshell superhero type character. Sigourney Weaver's Ripley is an every woman. She just wants to get home to her family and now there's aliens and she's got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my take on Ripley is what makes her different is that she's not different. She's just like someone you know. I'm glad you brought up Bruce Willis because he does sort of in a similar way, in some ways, tries to work within the system. He's partnering with a cop on the outside and he's aware of the protocols. But in other ways, he's giving a big fuck you to the FBI, doing his own thing, knowing that he's got the right plan and not really trying to answer to anybody. And I think what's interesting about Ripley, looking at her arc from the first film through the end of the quadrilogy. In the first film, she's very hung up about who has the authority, who's in charge, and that when the captain's off the ship, she should be in charge. And she's really upset when the android, played by Ian Holm, as a science officer, makes a call that she really felt was hers to make. And so it's interesting seeing that she's upset because she thinks it's the wrong call, but she's also upset because it's supposed to be her turn. It's supposed to be her opportunity to make a decision. And so then seeing her reset in Aliens, in one of the opening scenes, answering to this whole committee of people where she grows less and less patient going over the same story, but she's still more or less trying to work within the system and she wants their approval. She wants them to understand that she didn't have a choice. By the time you get to the fourth film, she has given up on the system. Aliens is an interesting pivotal moment for that character in that sense also of you see her start out like, I want these people to understand that I didn't have a choice. I followed it by the book as much as I could. Then she's going to go work in the cargo hold and just stay in her lane, basically. Like, and that that's where she is at the beginning. And by the end, she's in charge. By the end, she's the one calling the shots. And I think that journey is well done over the course of this film. Even though the critics say that there's not much of a plot. <laughs> I disagree, but I want to get back to the cast because when we talked about Alien, there's certain actors that I just love and I watch everything that they're in or try to. I mentioned this when we were talking about Alien, that, that it was Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if he was in a romantic comedy like Pretty in Pink. I would go see it. If his blues band was playing at a local bar, I would go see him. You know, if he was in Escape from New York as Brain, that made the movie that much better because Harry Dean Stanton was in it. Just loved Harry Dean Stanton. This movie casts two of my favorite people. So I have two <laughs> favorite actors in this that I try to see a lot of what they're, they're always good. 
Lance Henriksen, who was Bishop, and Bill Paxton, who was Hudson. In particular, Bill Paxton, Mm -hmm. the late Bill Paxton, who at the time we recorded this, he passed away a few years ago. Unfortunately, absolutely loved Bill Paxton's stuff. Again, like Harry Dean Stanton, he was also a musician. He was in a punk new wave band called Martini Ranch, which I really liked a lot. And, you know, I would see him in these little indie films like The Last Supper, or I would watch him in Weird Science. Oh, Weird Science. (laughs) Or in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He just pops up in all these great roles, and he always steals it. Yeah, one of my favorite Bill Paxton films is Frailty. He plays a father of two young boys, and he becomes convinced that he is being given instructions by God. And I don't want to ruin any more of of the film, but it is a twisty-turny horror film, and Bill Paxton, as a thoroughly committed believer, is a very different Bill Paxton than the one you see as Hudson. And so the guy's got range, is what I also just wanted to say. I love Frailty. I mean, he directed it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Bill Paxton originally came to Hollywood with the intention of directing movies. He wanted to be behind the the camera. And he did a few, he directed a couple of films and did some producing and stuff like that. But he was too good looking. I was like, put him in front of the camera. (laughs) (laughs) I swear he steals every movie he's in. And he did it in this one too. As whiny as Hudson is, you can't stop watching him when they find out that Burke tried to impregnate Newt and Ripley with alien embryos. He's just like, he's dog meat, pal. <laughs> You're dog meat, you know? Yeah. Cowardly as he acts and as whiny as he acts and all this, you're just waiting for him to just blow Paul Reiser's head off, you know? Because <laughs> you know it's about to happen when the aliens end up attacking. His role in The Terminator wasn't big at all. <laughs> when Schwarzenegger comes through the, the, the portal, portal naked. naked. <laughs> <laughs> the scene is like, 25 seconds long, maybe, but it's super memorable. (laughs) Lance Henriksen, I've always loved. He got his start as an extra in Close Encounters, and he's always done sci-fi stuff. He's done a lot of sci-fi stuff, and he's perfect as Bishop. We know that the android and alien turned out to be bad news and attacked Ripley. You never know. Is that going to happen or not? Is Bishop good or is Bishop bad? You don't know because he plays it perfect. Yeah. He also has some reprises in the later films, which I'm glad that they kind of kept him on as a character or just at least found other ways to fit Lance in. The specific kind of sensory horror that this film is trying to evoke, the mix of the slippery slime biomatter with mechanical hardwired machinery. I think Bishop embodies that pretty perfectly. Even in the opening scene with the knife, when you see the white milk on his fingers, that you kind of get this mix of, okay, you can do this really insane knife trick, and also, like, he's got weird, gross, not-quite-human gooey parts in the inside, and, I mean, it gets even more graphic later on. He's part of that same slippery body horror mixed with mechanics that the alien is part of. That scene with the knife we mentioned this when we covered dark star dark star was dan o'bannon's first film with john carpenter and it's a lot like a comedy version of alien there's actually a scene in dark star where someone's bored and they're just sitting in their cabin and they're doing the knife trick I don't know if that was written in the script or if it's coincidence or whatever, but that exact same knife trick is in both of those films. And that knife trick scene is great, not only because it's got my two favorite actors there, (laughs) but it demonstrates their characters perfectly. They improv that on the spot. They hadn't planned to have him put his hand on Hudson's hand, Mm -hmm. but... As he does it, you see that he can do it at superhuman speed. So we know he's an android and he cuts himself. We see that, that he's an android. And we also see that Hudson isn't as tough as he pretends to be. Mm-hmm. That quick scene it establishes both of their characters. Not long after they're out of cryosleep. And now we already know something about both of those characters from just that one interaction. One of the things I like about the waking up from cryo sleep, sitting down to a first meal is how it serves as a reset for you. It almost feels like you watch a short film before this film and then it's like you have a reset when they all wake up again. Before this scene where you meet all of the the army bros plus Vasquez, (laughs) um, you 
Um, oh, well, she's an army bro. Don't get yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> has anyone ever mistaken you for a man is what Hudson says. And yeah. she says, no, no has you. anyone? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's one of the best lines. But before all this happens, you get Ripley having nightmares. It starts unfolding as if it's reality and then turns into a dream. And you get the slow-mo and the music and everything, which shows up at, I think, four different points of the film. But in all the key tense moments, you get this slow-mo and the spinning musical theme that just says like okay it's time for a full panic you get some of that before she finally agrees to go on this mission and that she's waking up with these night sweats and processing like oh my god there are families there you have all this tension and this anxiety building up about what is going on on that planet and is ripley gonna go back and all that and then you wake up from cryosleep and immediately it's like camaraderie, laughing, joking around, the knife trick. It's not that the tension is totally diffused, but you are starting over with new characters who don't know about the alien. And so they aren't carrying that tension with them. And it gives you permission to let a little bit of it go. Because, of course, anybody going to sit down in this film... They're bringing the alien with them. They don't know when it's going to come out. They don't know if maybe there's another one on the ship or maybe Ripley got impregnated. They don't know what happened after the first one. And so they're carrying that around until they're given permission to say like, okay, you got to let some of that go. It's the only thing that really makes some of the horror in the later part of the film work is because you aren't exhausted by the time the aliens show up. You get to rediscover the alien through the eyes of these tough hombres, as, as Paul Reisner describes them, very tough hombres. <laughs> One of the great things about this is it's a genre blend. And so was Alien. Alien was obviously a sci-fi film, but its tagline was, in space, no one can hear you scream. So we know from the tagline, it is a horror film. This is, again, a science fiction film. And its tagline was, this time it's war. Mm -hmm. So what we're getting is a war film in space. This is, I believe, a Vietnam metaphor. All of those scenes of camaraderie and stuff like that are tropes typical to your war film. The ballet of arming up and then like the situation just goes bad to worse. And like, no, we're putting limitations on how this war can be fought. Oh, no, everybody collect up the magazines. We can't shoot, you know, mm -hmm. Vasquez pulls out of her bra yeah. extra magazines, you know, <laughs> just like, fuck that. You're not on the front lines, you know? I think one of the cool things is that they bring in all sorts of other horror in smaller ways, like the horror of nuclear meltdown. And like you, you mentioned Chernobyl, but in that scene where they collect the magazines, it's like the, okay, now suddenly there's a threat of a thermonuclear explosion. Like, like now we're going to add that in on top of everything else. It introduces new layers of like, once you get the military involved and you're dealing with a huge station in space, there are other risks like that complicates the plot in a legitimate way, as you were describing. Like, they have to put limits on these soldiers' abilities. They have to introduce kinks to the plan. And I think each time one of them happens, it's totally believable and makes sense for what's going on. The only time it doesn't, and I, you may disagree, but when they build the barricade and then discover that the aliens are coming through the vents, I'm like, fucking Ripley, like, you should have remembered this. Like, didn't you see it, the terror from beyond space? Like, <laughs> just... <laughs> well, Newt, Newt alone should have, yeah. But in the first movie that they're, that they think it's traveling through the air ducts and they're, they right. spent a lot of time going to find it there. And so... I, that was definitely an oversight there. Maybe if you slept for 50 years, you might forget. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not in a way that ruins the film at all. But like when when I get to that scene, it is one of the things I'm like, oh, damn it. Like, oh, you should have seen that coming. For me, one of the biggest flaws is that she faces this whole panel where they have to talk about the loss of the Nostromo and is she responsible and she has to defend her actions and all of that. And then as they're leaving the meeting, they tell her that they haven't found anything on that world and it's been inhabited for decades, you know? Yeah. But then in the very next scene, they come to her and they tell her, you know, we lost contact with the colonists. Like, really? They've been there for decades and you just lost contact with them since the meeting, you know? So this is one of the only scenes in the special edition I would keep because it is the scene where Newt's parents go and discover the alien ship and you get some sort of explanation for what happened. 
That's the only thing where I'm like, okay, this helps bridge that gap between scene A where they're like, there's no problem. And then like hours later, like we've lost contact. Now suddenly they're gone. The scenes that take place on LV-426 before the aliens have taken over help that a little bit. I'm not advocating that anyone should watch the special edition instead of the original film because there's like another 15 minutes worth of footage that you don't need. But those scenes with Newt's parents, I think at least point to some sort of like, they hadn't contacted, they hadn't gone into the alien ship. In theory, if they were encountering the ship in the same state that John Hurt's character encounters those eggs, then they would have needed someone to disrupt one of the eggs or like try to bring them back and you see them in the lab. You know, like you you sort of understand like as long as they don't disturb the ship, they're probably fine. And oh, what's the luck? They just found it. <laughs> but <laughs> to me that would still be a problem even with that scene included because when they come to Ripley's little pod whatever that she lives in she's talking to jonesy and it's like gonna be her first day back at work you'd have to cut that part and make it seem like she had been living her life at least a little bit of time before like so it doesn't seem like it's like hours later you know you know i think when you see the special edition footage then it makes this whole plot seem more clear but the idea that ripley comes back she tells them about this horrific alien species burke orders newt's parents to go dig up like well let's go investigate and see you know if there really is a possibly valuable hostile organism for us to go harvest or whatever and that he is the one who causes this all to happen and that it's something they're yelling about it and it's unclear without that linking scene whether she's implying that it's this mission to go to the planet that like all along it was not going to be a search and destroy mission as he had promised her but actually he wants to go collect the organisms or whether he knew about the aliens and that he should have told her about it already or you know what the deal is but when you get the special edition footage in there it shows more clearly the timeline of ripley comes back and reports the aliens burke orders them to go investigate and then they lose contact and it's that it's his fault and this goes back to my earlier point actually of uh, does this film have less teeth in it because you have a character like Burke to point to? Instead of having this feeling of it's capitalism that is the problem, you actually have more this feeling of it's this douchebag Burke who is the problem. And that you you have a target for your feelings in this film in a way you didn't in the original Alien. And on the one hand, it makes the critique much more obvious, which I think is probably a good thing. It's good that the critique of capitalism is more obvious, but... It also makes it less ominous, I guess, or like it sinks into your blood less. Well, I don't know. So in Alien, when Ripley finds out by accessing Mother, the ship's computer, that Ash was instructed to take them to that world, it seems like where the orders are coming from, they don't necessarily know the danger. Mm -hmm. But by having Burke be in Aliens... You got a guy who you know knows and just doesn't care. Yeah. To me, that more encapsulates the greed is good ideal of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it would have been less good without him. One of the reasons I think it's such a perfect film is that if you went and put that special footage back in, not only does it slow things down, but also suddenly now you find out earlier that Burke is not got clean hands. Whereas in the way that the film is structured theatrically, you don't know that he's a bad guy yet. Mm -hmm. You don't even suspect it. At least I didn't until you get to the part where he, he betrays them, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's more dramatically impactful. Yeah. This film has probably some influence from Robert Heinlein, who wrote Starship Troopers, that eventually got made into a movie that had very little to do with the book. In fact, this film in many ways is more true to the novel Starship Troopers than Starship Troopers, the movie was. <laughs> a lot of things are lifted straight out of Heinlein. Bug Hunt, the gear and stuff like that comes straight out of... Now, Heinlein wrote Starship Troopers after Korea, but before Vietnam. So it's more about the Korean War, but there's a lot of parallels between Korea and Vietnam. So I think a lot of that comes out in this film. Yeah, Hudson 
pretty much asks the exact same thing. It's like, you know, is this going to be a real confrontation or another bug hunt? Another bug hunt. Like they've done it before, right? Yeah. Well, and that's something I think is interesting about this series in general is unlike in Star Trek where they indicate to you that humans and aliens are interacting with each other. And in fact, there are aliens who are part of the crew. This is all normal. You know, like Worf in Next Generation, Spock in the original series. Aliens are just kind of like part of normal life now. And in Alien and Aliens, there's an indication they have encountered other alien species before. Like there's some line in the beginning of this film in like 500 surveyed worlds. We haven't encountered anything like what you've described. And then the soldiers are joking around about having sex with an Octorian and like, oh, it doesn't matter whether it's male or female when it's Octorian or whatever. <laughs> like they're talking very casually about like there are lots of other aliens that they've discovered, but they don't show up in the film. And that's like, I think an interesting part of keeping the alien creature still feeling different and scary and unknown is that there's no sense of continuum. There are humans, there's androids in the middle that are like, oh, we don't know how we feel about them either. And then there is this hostile organism. And so there's no sense of like, well, maybe it's not as bad as we thought. It's like, no, absolutely. It's even worse. Something interesting that struck me watching it this time around was how unnerved I was by the fact that the alien had, in what seems like a very short amount of time, cocooned all throughout their settlement. The Marines are going in and they transition in and out of the colonist settlement and part of the processing plant where they create the atmosphere or whatever. And that there is a very human made feeling in one part. And then there's a transition spot where you see suddenly that the alien creature has started building its nest and habitat inside the human world and just sort of processing like, wasn't it only like a couple weeks ago or so, like, like not much time has passed, you know, and that the aliens have already made this world their own world. And the slimy mixed with metal thing, it, you know, in terms of the set, I think does a lot to create that atmosphere. The only female character we've really talked a lot about is Ripley. And there are a lot of space marines that are just there to be red shirts and die. Dietrich is one. Another was a pharaoh. But I think the two standout characters that actually we remember is Vasquez, who we've talked a little bit about. She is definitely the tough girl. This is Michelle Rodriguez before Michelle Rodriguez had a lock on all those parts. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Michelle Rodriguez is actually Latina. And um, Jeanette Goldstein, who plays Vasquez, is not. Huh. But you would never know that. Yeah. I don't think Jeanette Goldstein is. It's an interesting component to put in the character only because it implies that the politics in this future are still the same. Like, it's still like 1980s era immigration politics about and like national like the joke he says like someone thought she said illegal aliens and signed up or whatever you know like that some of those jokes are in there and like when you hear it it's like oh that's a very clever line and then you like pause a second and you're like wait a minute <laughs> what kind of future is this <laughs> yeah well that's actually kind of funny that's an inside joke because apparently Jeanette Goldstein when she showed up for the audition thought that it was about illegal alien immigration <laughs> and so she showed up she showed up supposedly in a skirt and heels and everything for this part of this tough space marine. That's hilarious. <laughs> and so they kept that in. Mm -hmm. um, that was like some inside joke between the actors that they included. But the only reason I can think of is either Cameron's just a very like forward thinking, inclusive guy to include a Latina or this might be another thing they borrowed from Starship Troopers because the main character, Rico, is Latino. Mm -hmm. They might have said, you know, let's let's make one of the Space Marines hmm. Latinx. But the one we really have to talk about is Newt. Oh, gosh, who's so awesome and apparently never did anything again, went off and became a school teacher or something. But I think she's great in this film, actually. Carrie Henn is so we got a lot of creepy kids in the 80s. You know, we had the little poltergeist girl, you know, they're here. Mm -hmm. But for me, the best just sends shivers down your spine is like when Newt says stuff like they mostly they only come, come at out night. At night. <laughs> they mostly come they at mostly night. They mostly come out night. 
mostly because yeah. <laughs> you're just like oh crap and of course the line that i already mentioned where it's like ripley is trying to reassure her saying you know these are trained soldiers you know we're we're, we're... and she's like <laughs> it won't make any difference <laughs> yeah know? yeah um, i also love her first line when she first speaks and you know sigourney weaver is like trying to be really nice and giving her hot chocolate and asking her questions. And she's like, where are your parents? And Newt says, they're dead. They're all dead. Can I go now? <laughs> I mean, a believable child character. And the the doll, the plastic doll head where she's like, I bet Casey isn't scared. And she's like, Ripley, that's because Casey's a piece of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just she's old enough to kind of take care of herself, but still definitely in that young enough to be carrying around a doll for comfort and sort of believing that it's got some kind of power or to be comforted by a toy enough to carry it around when there's all sorts of good reasons you would want both of your hands free or that you would want to be carrying anything else like a weapon, a stick, like who knows? And she's got this doll instead. And somehow... I mean, you get this sort of sense that her innocence has protected her in sort of a weird way. And that when she gets scooped up by these military people, then suddenly she's in a lot more danger than she was before, which is, I don't know if we're meant to believe that or if we're meant to think, thank goodness these people showed up because she would have been dead sooner or later if they hadn't. I don't know how we're supposed to feel about whether the Marines are doing her a favor or not. We're running out of time here, but I wanted to talk about films that are related to this film in one way or another, because that's what we do. We did it. We've already mentioned Alien, which it's the sequel to, and It the Terror from Beyond Space. But I made a list of some of these. Remember when we were talking about Alien, there was a um, Italian space vampire film mm -hmm. that we mentioned yeah, well, and that the original title of um, It, the Terror Beyond Space was The Vampire from Outer Space or something. Right. Well, Mario Bava, famous Italian director, did a Planet of the Vampires or something, which was one of the influences on Dan O'Bannon. But there was another horror film called Galaxy of Terror, which Cameron has stated in the past, he believes Alien is set in its same universe. Hmm. So that's one worth sticking up. But I made a list of just, and this is off the top of my head, the movies that I see as some way related to this film um, or worth checking out for one reason or another. Alien, first of all, all the Alien sequels. So A Alien 3 coming after this. Obviously the Terminator films, because we get both Michael Bean and Bill Paxton and... Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen. So same cast Blade Runner and its sequels, because Ridley Scott has said that they're in the same universe and they've been dovetying those two together. So essentially we Ash and Bishop are replicants of some sort. The Dark Horse comics need to be mentioned because while I was not a huge fan of Alien, the illustrated story that was put out by Heavy Metal magazine, the Dark Horse comics are amazingly good. It's really sad. We just learned just mere weeks ago that Dark Horse has lost the Aliens license. Hmm. The way they competed with Marvel and DC, the two biggies when it comes to comic books was they focused more on on movie tie-ins and, and licensing and they owned the license to star wars the license to terminator i think they they definitely owned the license to aliens and predator which is how we got aliens and predator in together aliens versus predator which spawned its own series of movies then of course the predator series because it now we know it's tied into the alien universe. Also, the film Soldier, which the writer went on to write. It's a Kurt Russell action science fiction film about space soldiers. And the writer claims is in the same universe as Alien Aliens. The TV series Firefly has one small but significant Easter egg in it that relates it to the Aliens franchise. Hmm. But... One that I wanted to mention for sure is one of my favorite vampire films, because we were talking about vampires, Near Dark by Catherine Bigelow, which has a lot of the same cast. Michael Bean was offered a role in it, and he turned it down, but it has Jeanette Goldstein in it. It has Lance Henriksen in it. It has Bill Paxton in it. 
a very different take on vampires, sort of a rough and tumble country, western, honky-tonk, southwest, <laughs> not the debonair gentleman type vampires eking out an existence on the fringes of society. Fantastic vampire film. Worth mentioning when we're talking about Aliens, just because it shares so much of the same cast. And the reason that they did that was similar to why Cameron chose to do those scenes near the end where they had been together for a long time to show the camaraderie. Catherine Bigelow, who was dating Cameron and later married him, she had mentioned it to James Cameron, who suggested that she cast... (laughs) these same people because they had just spent all this time together and she wanted a vampire family well they were like a family Mm -hmm. and it really comes across well in my opinion those are just the ones off the top of my head i think the parallels between the alien as a creature and vampires the more we examine it the more parallels there seem to be even thinking about the alien queen as like a dracula figure i mean of course like she being a female energy in in this film but still the same kind of idea of there being like a super first version of whatever the creature is who then is trying to spawn and spread and take over something dracula in, in a similar way or vampires in general are they trying to decimate and replace humanity or are they just trying to stay contained on their on their own thing and what kind of threat do they pose and do they need to be eliminated and all those questions and the way that the aliens are talked about is even similar to the way the Victorian vampire stories for sure but even more recent ones the idea of being infected there's a lot less fear of them being infected in this film because we're watching them just get mauled or like we're not watching them. We're seeing their vision cam shake and then go out and we know that they're being picked off one by one. But still, even in this film, they talk about we have no idea how many people have been infected. And in the original, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, they think about it as a disease and they think about it as an infection first. And so I definitely hope we do some spin-off vampire scenes from from our pursuit of aliens. There is a lot of parallels that are under the surface. Dracula, even though it was written in the 1800s, it has some of these same ideas in it. Jonathan Harker was going out to the fringes to Carpathian Mountains to do a real estate deal. It was about capitalism. (laughs) And he brings back this plague with him, this disease, this creature... Well, and also the anxieties about advances in science and advances in industry as being things that create that tension. There are blood transfusions in Dracula, which was new technology, basically, that people were still very suspicious of. And so you get the same kind of thing in the Alien franchise. I actually, I mean, I wanted to talk about this much longer, but we, you know, maybe we'll save it for a later conversation. But the somewhat anti-science bent of this film is interesting. The people who are experimenting on the aliens are seen as being reckless in trying to make scientific progress and putting other people in jeopardy. And that there's still this distrust of androids and where science is going there. Even the nuclear plant, suddenly that's a problem. You know, that that's another source of anxiety related to scientific advances. And that I think that part that it shares with Dracula is part of what gives it its flavor. It's not just Jaws. Jaws is sort of science comes to save the day, more or less. A shark expert who is like, thank goodness, gonna like help you figure out the problem. But in here, the scientists are not necessarily on your side. And I think that that adds to the tension. Any last thoughts about aliens? When I was pregnant, I was pregnant over Halloween and I dressed as Ripley for Halloween. That was one of the years I was Ripley and I drew an alien on my stomach as like, a, you know, what kind of maternal figure am I? And I think, I don't know, I maybe it's crazy to say that I am the kind of like mother that I wanna be based on the kind of mother that I think Ripley is of, you know, someone who is you know, strong and protective, but also kind. And um, the way she talks to to Newt and the immediate connection she has to her and this, you know, commitment, like she's ready to die for this girl, like immediately. 
um, that that is the kind of that is the kind of mother I've always wanted to be. And it's something it's something that stuck with me. And I guess that's what makes this film to me seem a cut above other sci-fi action horror films is that there is something there is something in it to take out of the film of, you know, something something positive and meaningful, you know, beyond just the cool special effects and and the the thrills of of a creature that is beyond imagination. 